0: Hey there, history fans! We're taking the day off, but don't worry, we've got plenty of classic shows to tide you over. Check out these selections from previous years of This Day in History class, and I'll meet you back here tomorrow with a
3: brand new episode. See you then! Welcome to This Day in History class. It's July 5th. Today in 1888, 200 workers at the Bryant and May Match Factory in London walked off the job in what came to be known as the London Match Girls Strike. The Bryant and May Factory was in London's East End, and this was a poor neighborhood. There were a lot of immigrants and minorities living there. It was really looked down on by the rest of London. Even today, the term East End of London conjures up a certain image. Bryant and May was one of many, many factories in the East End of London. And most of these factories were in what was called sweating industries. These were places where people worked long hours in windowless rooms, often doing really dangerous work. And they tended to be looked down upon by other workers, particularly workers that were in trades that required more skill or more education to do. And in this neighborhood that was home to London's poorest people... In an area that was full of industries that were just awful to work in and exploitive, the most dangerous, most unpleasant, and most low paying jobs went to the match girls. They were really the lowest of the low. There were some men who worked in the match factories, but overwhelmingly the people working there were women. And some of them were adults, but many of them were children. People in the Bryant and May factory were as young as eight. So working at the Bryant and May Match Factory meant working very long hours. The day started at 6.30 in the morning in the winter and 8 in the morning in the summertime. Regardless of what time the day started, it ended at 6 p.m. All the work was done standing up, and all the workers had a series of very draconian rules that they had to follow uh, throughout their workday. They had to run up and down the stairs to get the match frames that they worked out of because they were only allowed to have one frame at a time. So there was a lot of running up and down the stairs. They were making strike anywhere matches, which, as their name suggests, you could strike on any rough surface. And that meant that sometimes when they were working, their work would burst into flames that would destroy their work for the day. And they weren't being paid By the hour, they were being paid by the piece. So if your work caught fire while you were working on it, you were out that money. It was gone. You also had to pay for your own tools. You had to pay for necessities that were required to be able to do your work for the day. And there were endless, endless rules that led to people's pay being docked or even fired. If your feet were dirty, if you talked, If your workbench wasn't clean, all of these things, you would be fined or you would be fired. And then there were also health hazards. There was a condition called fossy Jaw, and that's another name for phosphorus poisoning. The yellow phosphorus that was being used in these matches could damage bone tissue, and it caused an illness that started with tooth pain and swollen gums, and then it would escalate to necrosis and even death. So, none of this sounds particularly pleasant, and it's not completely clear why, in particular, on July 5th, the workers walked out. One story was that it was due to Annie Besant. She was a socialist and a feminist and a reformer who had been talking to the match workers about their lives and their work, and she had been publicizing the conditions at the factory. She had published her findings the month prior, but she definitely didn't arrange this strike. So whatever the reason was, they walked off the job that day. They formed the Union of Women Matchmakers. Soon, more than a 1,000 match factory workers were on strike. They picketed. They held demonstrations. They went to meetings. They went to Parliament. And Annie Besant publicized this whole thing. She has sometimes incorrectly been given the credit for doing all of this work. But what she was really good at was the publicity part. These women and girls who were working in the factory, they were the people that were doing the organizing and doing the demonstrating. They got the support of some of the other trade unions, along with criticism from people who claimed that these workers had been talked into doing this by outsiders. In the end, though, this strike was successful. All those fines were abolished, along with the deductions from the pay for the tools that people had to have to do their job. Their pay was adjusted. They had a new grievance procedure that was put into place. So if they had a problem, they had a process for being able to have something done about it. The union was recognized and had the right to negotiate on behalf of the workers. And they got a lunchroom. This was a big deal because it meant that they had somewhere away from their workbench to eat their lunch. And eating at the workbench with all that phosphorus was putting more and more phosphorus into their mouths. And it was causing that terrible condition called Fosse Jaw. This didn't permanently fix the problems at the factory, though. And workers continued to become ill due to phosphorus exposure. In 1891, the Salvation Army opened a competing match factory that used only red phosphorus, which did not cause fossey jaw, and it paid double what Bryant and May did. Bryant and May finally stopped using yellow phosphorus in 1901. This strike also inspired a lot of other factory workers to unionize, and that grew into the new unionism movement and the establishment of the Independent Labor Party. You can learn more about the London Match Girls strike from the September 5th, 2016 episode of Stuff You Miss in History Class. And you can subscribe to the Stay in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was July 5th, 1996. Dolly the sheep, the first mammal to be successfully cloned from an adult cell, was born, though her birth was not announced until 1997. A clone is a living organism that has the same genetic information as another organism. Keith Campbell, Ian Wilmot, and others at the Roslin Institute in Scotland cloned Dolly using a method called somatic cell nuclear transfer, or SCNT. In this method, the nucleus of an egg cell is removed and replaced with the nucleus of a donor adult cell. The animal born from this process will have nearly the same DNA as the original donor cell. Dolly was not the first mammal to be cloned. The first was a sheep that was cloned from an embryo cell and born in 1984 in Cambridge, England. Two other sheep had been cloned from embryonic cells grown at the Roslin Institute lab in 1995. And when Dolly was born, so were six other sheep that were cloned from embryonic and fetal cells. Dolly was the one to become famous because she was cloned from an adult cell, something believed to be impossible at the time. Dolly's DNA came from a six-year-old sheep. Once normal development was confirmed at six days, the embryo was transferred to a surrogate mother. Dolly was born on July 5, 1996. Out of 277 embryos researchers at the Roslin Institute had attempted to clone, Dolly was the only animal born. Initially, Dolly was codenamed 6LL3, Stockman, who helped give birth to Dolly, suggested the name Dolly after Dolly Parton because the cell used to clone her came from a mammary gland. The Roslyn Institute announced Dolly's birth on February 22, 1997, along with the publication of their research results related to the cloning. Dolly lived at the Roslyn Institute with other sheep. She had six lambs with a Welsh mountain ram named David, and they were called Bonnie, Sally, Rosie, Lucy, Darcy, and Cotton. When Dolly was one, DNA analysis did show that her telomeres were shorter than normal. Telomeres are repetitive nucleotide sequences at the end of chromosomes that form a cap to protect them from deteriorating or fusing with other chromosomes. As animals age and cells divide, telomeres shorten, and eventually the chromosome cannot be replicated, triggering the cell to die. Dolly's short telomeres could have meant she was physically older than her true age, but health tests did not show that she was aging quickly or prematurely. In 2000, Dolly, along with other sheep at the Institute, was infected with JSRV, a virus that causes contagious lung cancer in sheep. And in 2001, when Dolly was four years old, she was diagnosed with arthritis. She was treated successfully with anti-inflammatory medicine, but it wasn't clear what caused the arthritis. Dolly lived a healthy life until February 10th, 2003, when staff reported that she was coughing. When the team conducted a CT scan on Dolly days later, they found tumors growing in her chest. She had progressive lung disease caused by infection with JSRV. She was euthanized on February 14th, when she was six years old. The average life expectancy for a thin dorset sheep like Dolly was 10 to 12 years, but researchers did not think her early death was related to her being a clone. Many other large animals were cloned after Dolly demonstrated that cloning from an adult somatic cell could be successful, including clones of Dolly. Dolly's cloning also encouraged a new understanding of cell modification and drove advances in stem cell research and therapy. Of course, Dolly's cloning was highly controversial, leading to discussions of livestock cloning, human cloning, and de-extinction. I'm Yves Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Come back tomorrow for another tidbit from history.